going to become one of the most extraordinary set of events that the ICJ has, uh, has ever had. Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All rise. So this week we have the Gambia case against Myanmar at the International Criminal Court of Justice, the highest UN court. And it's about um, the Gambia saying that Myanmar is committing genocide against the Rohingya Muslim minority. Wow, it's going to be a big event in The Hague, isn't it? It's going to be a bit of a circus even. Absolutely. Aung San Suu Kyi, the civilian ruler of Myanmar and Nobel Prize winner, um, is leading the Myanmar delegation and everybody in the media is going slightly nuts over this because she's now become this controversial figure, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, but also somebody who's now representing a regime that at the very least is suspected of widespread uh, human rights abuses. And so she's a controversial figure. She'll be here. Everybody's going to want to follow this. And it's the Gambia, a small country in Africa, who filed the case. And they're asking the court to decide whether they can have a thing called protective measures, meaning that uh, Myanmar should stop the alleged genocide while waiting for the main case to be heard. And while we were talking to Jens Iverson and Joe Powderly, both at Leiden University, about their plans to start a podcast, we ambushed them and pulled them into their office to talk about this case, to get them to explain some of the ICJ peculiarities to us. Um, what an office it was. Do you remember, Stephanie, how many books there were piled up all over the place? Yeah, especially Jens was very proud of that. I have to say... I can't take all the blame for the messiness of this <laughs> office because it is in fact an office Joe and I share together. So whatever photo looks the messiest, that's that's Joe's half of the office. So there's going to be a lot of specialist language terminology to do with the International Court of Justice going on in the hearings. So we asked the guys to mansplain to us what some of these terms mean. First, we grilled Jens about his term, provisional measures. So provisional measures aren't specific to the ICJ or to international courts in general. Anybody who's practiced domestically uh, might also be familiar with this idea. So um, to take a domestic law example, if you have a family law dispute, um, you, someone wants to be divorced, well, a provisional measure might be to say, before we're finished with the divorce, I want a restraining order from this person so they stay away from me. So whenever the subject matter of the dispute might change before the dispute is finally resolved, it's within the power of the court, the jurisdiction of the court, to reach out and say, you know, stop, don't make this worse. Don't change this before, in the case of the ICJ, perhaps several years pass. Um, so particularly when the allegation is one of genocide, you might say, Myanmar, you are immediately ordered to stop making things worse for the alleged victims of genocide. So you're actually, this is um, the Gambia asking for a restraining order against Myanmar for the Rohingya. Except what's interesting here is that, of course, the Gambia isn't asking for themselves. It's more like your neighbor down the street saying, uh, hey, we have an agreement together, the Genocide Convention, and it allows me to, tell, uh, to ask the court to tell you to, as it were, stop beating your wife. 
So it's more like the neighborhood watching agreement. No, oh, I think that this uh, analogy this can only go so far. <laughs> let's go. Uh, let, let's be clear, though. I mean, isn't the first thing um, is, you know, won't the court have to decide whether it can decide this? So, yeah, there. I mean, before the court can even entertain the possibility of issuing provisional measures, and Jens is quite right, it's to ensure that, you know, you basically stop what you're doing and, you know, for a period of, it could be a number of years at the ICJ, as Jen said. But interestingly, in the Gambia submission, they also are seeking uh, assurances uh, from the court and from uh, Myanmar that they will not destroy evidence, uh, which may be relevant in the future proceedings. And of course, that may have relevance as well for uh, other jurisdictions like the ICC, who may be uh, investigating related acts as well. So that's interesting. But before the ICJ will even... Uh, you know, go down this route, they must satisfy themselves of certain prerequisites. Um, one of which is that there is, in fact, a dispute uh, between the Gambia and Myanmar. And this is a, a standard step that the court goes through, and it goes right back to the, the early days of the Permanent Court of International Justice, uh, which was the precursor to the ICJ. Uh, and generally, it's basically saying, what is the basis of this disagreement? Surely in this case, I mean, there's a genocide treaty. That's it, isn't it? Exactly. But uh, the Gambia must have taken steps to make Myanmar aware of the fact uh, that they were uh, in disagreement with them over their interpretation and application of their obligations under the Genocide Convention. And the Gambia have included in their in their application uh, a series of sort of steps they've taken, t in their view, to alert Myanmar to the fact that there was this dispute over their adherence to their obligations under the Genocide Convention. Rather. Are these the famous note verbal that are always exactly. mentioned at the ICJ? Exactly. Note verbal. That's just French for a verbal bit of communication, but actually written? Yes, so it will be an official communication uh, between the Gambia to Myanmar, which I think was only submitted on the 11th of October, uh, which Myanmar have not responded to. Uh, but along, So that's the most official form of alert, get the Gambia alerting Myanmar to the fact that we have a problem here. And we're intending to take it further if you uh, were seeking your response, but we may be willing to take it further. Um, you also have some statements that they rely on, particularly at the UN General Assembly, where the Gambia said that they were going to lead the international cause in relation to crimes or uh, actions taken against the Rohingya. Uh, although they never actually mentioned the Genocide Convention in those uh, in those comments to the General Assembly. So the court will look at all of these different efforts uh, uh, which have been taken to alert Myanmar to this dispute, and then we'll decide whether or not there is, in fact, uh, a basis for their jurisdiction. So we've got some already some funny language, provisional measures, note verbals, and so on. What else should people be looking out for in terms of the way that the ICJ operates and the kind of language that you might come across there? I have in my mind that there's something called a memorial, but I can't even remember what that is. Well, Who wants to go first? I'll, I'll go ahead. Yes, um, it, it shouldn't be too confusing for people uh, uh, following the case. A memorial or a counter memorial, it's really just the written submissions of the parties. Um, they, they keep this language that you might not have in other courts um, because it, it comes from the 
English tradition of, of submitting something to uh, a legislature or court to say, this is the memorialization of our submission, our facts and our arguments before the court. Uh, so it's nothing like a, a war memorial or anything uh, that you might think of using the normal use. It's just a written submission uh, that the court receives from the parties. And um, what is this ergo omne partis that we keep hearing about with the dispute? Um, so part of the proceedings will be uh, and dis determining whether there's a dispute is whether um, the Gambia is claiming rights that it holds which have been violated by uh, Myanmar's uh, actions. Uh, and rights which are ergo omnes are rights which are uh, imparted to all states. So all states have an interest in seeing that uh, the Genocide Convention is upheld. Um, so it doesn't have to be uh, you know, a state claiming directly that Myanmar violated their rights. So usually uh, disputes at the ICJ are bilateral. They're between two states. State A saying, State B, you violated our rights directly uh, in relation to a particular course of conduct. And there's direct link between them. Now, the Gambia are saying the, the rights under the Genocide Convention apply to all states. And we have an obligation as a state to haul you up and say you have violated the rights of all states and we're taking the lead in ensuring that there is some uh, recompense uh, for, those, uh, for those actions. So just to build on what Joe said, you might think of most disputes between states as something like a violation of a contract. Mm. Often there's a treaty and they say, you didn't do what you said you would do under the contract. ICJ, make them do it. And then you also have under customary law, often if there's a very bad violation of international law, use Kogan's uh, violation, then it might say, we don't need to show that contractual bilateral relationship. It's erga omnes, which you can just think of as between everyone. And then erga omnes partes is in a particular kind of treaty. So the genocide convention isn't like a normal um, commercial contract. It's not something where you say, uh, hey, you don't commit genocide, so we don't commit genocide. Rather, it's a shared commitment to say, none of us are going to commit genocide. And if anyone who's a party to this treaty does, we all agree that we all have the right to have standing, that we will all be able to have that dispute. So erga omnes partes is just between all of the parties to the statute. Every state that joined the convention has the right to bring this kind of uh, lawsuit before the ICJ. Anything else you think that people are going to be a bit confused about at the ICJ? Or have we covered at least the first part, do you think? Well, I think one question people will ask is, uh, why is Aung San Suu Kyi uh, proposing to lead the case uh, for uh, Myanmar? Isn't it normally a big international lawyer who does that? So usually it's the, you know, it's not unusual for a government minister or an attorney general, for instance, to, to take sort of the lead or be the lead agent uh, in the case. Um, that's what's happening with the, with the, with the Gambia. Uh, I think it's the Minister of Justice um, who is uh, taking it on. Uh, in the past, um, heads of state have... Um, 
appeared at the court at an early stage, I think Evo Morales, although he just was present in the court, he didn't actually say anything. Uh, so it's going to be very, very interesting whether Aung San Suu Kyi actually gets to her feet uh, and presents um, part of the uh, part of the argument on behalf of Myanmar, or whether it's just some sort of symbolic um, act uh, on her part um, to sort of indicate how seriously they oppose um, the accusation that they've that they've violated the genocide convention. But it means it's going to become one of the most extraordinary set of events that the ICJ has uh, has ever had. I have a question that one of my colleagues asked me, and it's kind of, I didn't prepare this with you, so I'm going to throw you in the deep end. Um, technically, because the ICC has now opened an official investigation into Myanmar, mm. there is, I think, a theoretic possibility that they would ask for an arrest warrant and ask the Netherlands to arrest her when she's on the Hague soil. Oh, my God. Theoretically. Isn't it theoretically that she comes for a UN thing, though? I mean, isn't there a kind of a UN, you, you know, the ICJ is the highest court at the UN. You don't uh, you don't arrest anybody. Anybody can go to New York and appear there. Yes, Arafat appeared at the UN in New York and the Americans didn't arrest him, etc. Or am I wildly speculating? Law professors, what do you say? Well, it takes us into the realm of uh, the big mess that is immunities um, at mm. the ICC, but also on a practical level. Uh, the investigation has only just been opened. In order for an arrest warrant, they would have to act extraordinarily quickly because they would have to have that. Uh, there would be a hearing around the arrest warrant, whether there are uh, grounds to grant an arrest warrant. And then you would be relying on presumably the Dutch authorities uh, to go ahead and arrest Aung San Suu Kyi. I think it is, I suppose, if we were writing the script of the uh, of the Hollywood movie version of this, obviously then... You know, once she got off the plane in Schiphol, the Dutch police would swoop in and take her off to the court and it would be all cut and dried and very straightforward. But I think it's absolutely not going to happen. I think that is a very entertaining speculation, which allows us to sort of go into a couple areas where people, I think, do get confused. One is the basic difference between... Uh, and for your readers this or listeners, this probably isn't a problem, but between the ICC and the ICJ, mm. I suspect many people following this around the world will get those two confused and will get the basic mm. distinction between a, a um, dispute between states and the responsibility of the state of Myanmar and the ICC at the very early stages to see whether there is a individual, a real human with criminal responsibility. I do think it's right to distinguish between the immunities of the head of government, uh, which Aung San Suu Kyi is, and someone on a special mission. So you do have a separate form of immunities. And uh, as, as you stated um, there's been some um, analysis of that at the ICC but the truth is is that international law scholars and in fact international courts seem to be taking very different approaches with this uh, so uh, anything's possible and it's a very interesting idea for an exam question <laughs> <laughs> Just for the record, I don't think that Fatou Bensouda would risk this, but I don't know if she's feeling like she should have a last hooray, why not? But I think it would be faster than anything the ICC has ever done. 
So I would be very surprised. But theoretically, apparently it's possible. So this was your uh, first foray into the um, the field of uh, uh, intense, off-the-cuff podcasting. How do you feel, guys? Liberated, I think. Yes, well, delighted. I, I think I like being interviewed more than interviewing. Joe and I are... Um, trying to interview some of uh, the, the scholars here at Leiden um, with a view towards launching a podcast in the future. Um, but you you both are delightful to interview with. So it's oh, shucks. Oh. How very nice. Well, we'll have you back on when uh, you actually get to, uh, to launch your podcast and you can tell us more about it. And I'm sure that uh, all of us will enjoy the spectacle of the ICJ and uh, see actually what happens in the Myanmar and Gambia genocide case. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.